Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening, and thanks for your company here on ADH TV. I'm Jake Thrupp, filling in for Alan Jones. Alan had a commitment up in Brisbane today, so you're stuck with me tonight. And of course, Fred Paul is on after me. But I just wanted to say a quick thank you to all of those viewers who took the time to email me the last time I hosted the show. The feedback was great. You can email me your thoughts on anything we cover tonight on the show. Just email jakethrupp at adh.tv. Well, a packed show for you tonight. I'll be speaking with the opposition's industrial relations spokeswoman, Michaelia Cash. She has plenty to say about last week's jobs summit, which let's be real, was really just a carefully staged PR stunt by the Albanese government. Buckle up because the militant trade unions are back in power under this lot. Most of the announcements were announced prior to the summit, but they were all from the union playbook. The ACTU's Sally McManus is now a VIP around the corridors in Canberra. Same with all the other union bosses. They seem to have gotten their way on industry-wide bargaining. So we may as well kiss goodbye productivity and say hello to the 1970s where militant unions dictate economic policy and strike every second day. Thankfully and rightly, the opposition leader Peter Dutton didn't attend. A wise move. But clearly, the leader of the National Party, David Littleproud, didn't receive that memo. He spoke at the summit, can you believe, talking in cliches as usual, with the added, where for regional Australia? Oh yeah? Is that why you're a disciple of net zero emissions, Mr Littleproud? Can someone tell him that it's the farmer and other regional Australians who suffer the most under this policy direction? Net zero emissions is about shutting down anything in relation to fossil fuels, sticking up wind turbines all over regional Australia and eliminating livestock, not to mention shipping jobs offshore. But it reminds me of the saying that we only have 24 hours in a day, so you have the choice to walk with wise people and stack up more wisdom, or you can become a companion of fools. Well, David Littleproud, you chose to spend your day at Labor's job summit surrounded by union bosses, says it all. I'll also be joined, as Alan is every Tuesday night, by Peggy Grandy for the US report. It's a cracker tonight as we look at Joe Biden's dark speech from last Thursday. I think the American president has made a huge blunder to bag out the over 74 million people who voted Republican at the last election. So all that and more coming up. Now, there was a news poll yesterday which showed support for the coalition plunging to a record low. With a primary vote of 31%, the coalition finds itself in its equal worst result since polling records began in the mid-1980s. Interestingly, although understandably, Pauline Hanson's One Nation now sits at a three-year high of 7%. Centre-right voters are looking for a home. The Liberal Party ought to be it. Now, of course, being just after an election, Labor enjoys a honeymoon period, aided by non-stop gushing from the media. It appears the Prime Minister and his team can do no wrong, even if they continue to shy away from making decisions 
on the big issues facing hardworking Australians. You don't need to orchestrate a job summit in Canberra to seek answers on the economic problems we face. Nor would any sensible government let Sally McManus anywhere near the driver's seat. Productivity is the only game in town. And how do we boost productivity? Wind back the ballooning welfare system, which breeds a culture of dependency on government. Embrace our resources sector and ensure coal and gas plants remain open and not shut, so we have cheap domestic energy production. Invest in nuclear power, so we can bolster commerce in regional Australia and create decent paying jobs. Reduce the blow to bureaucracy, and while you're at it, cut taxes so Australians can keep more of their own money rather than allowing politicians to waste it. In other words, let's cut the guy ropes of pesky regulation and green lawfare, and let's get moving again. This is what a refreshed and revamped Liberal Party ought to fight for. Can the new leader, Peter Dutton and his team, get the party back on track and give supporters something to fight for? Let's hope so. Because for too long, the Liberal Party has been hijacked by people who, frankly, belong in the Labor Party or worse, the Greens. Especially in the past two years, supporters have felt betrayed by the party as it failed to stand up and defend the values and principles it purports to represent. The values of freedom, the adherence to human rights, reward for effort, equal opportunity, self-responsibility, and creating economic settings which allow business to prosper, not flounder. Last year, with the help of others, I put together a book titled Australia Tomorrow. You can purchase your copy online. It's a collection of essays by eminent centre-right thinkers, politicians, and business leaders in Australia. My hope is that this book would act as a somewhat manifesto for a future Liberal Party which decides to show a willingness to take on Labor and show some political courage. The way I see it, the Liberals have surrendered on so many fronts. Net zero emissions, yep, let's fly to Glasgow and shake Greta Thunberg's hand. Big government, yep, let's hand over virtually all decision-making to public health officials and give states an elevated platform with the unconstitutional national cabinet. Government spending, yep, let's add to the eye-watering debt, now a trillion dollars, and introduce JobKeeper an $89 billion scheme where $13 billion of that went to firms with rising earnings. Did no one in the Treasury Department think about a clawback provision? Freedom of speech at universities, well, sort of. The Coalition did appoint former Chief Justice Robert French to undertake a review of freedom of speech in Australian universities, but instead of making it law, just encouraged universities to enact it. So we still have situations like the other day where Malcolm Turnbull was invited to Sydney Uni to deliver a speech at the Law Society's alumni speaker series, yet couldn't, as he was interrupted and shouted down by student activists. Whatever your views on Mr Turnbull, he is a former Prime Minister of this country and anyone who has previously held that office deserves a degree of decorum. So here we are, net zero ideology, big government, out of control spending, free speech under attack, plus more. It's depressing, but it's the reason why the Liberal Party must work hard to mobilise hard-working Australians
and control the narrative. As I wrote in Australia Tomorrow, we are the political side which grants the best conditions for human beings to realise their true self. Unlike the left, we do not want to equalise outcomes and take from those who have been rewarded for their effort only to redistribute it to others. We do not want to produce an entire group of people who are solely dependent on welfare. We do not want to encourage victimhood and box people into categories. We do not want to suffocate your earning potential. We do not want government to grow so big that every aspect of your life is met with a bureaucrat, a piece of legislation or a tax. We also do not believe that government should be brought into the private home. If this entire socialist overhaul of our way of life was allowed, may we ask who benefits? The centralisation of power only benefits those at the top, not the worker. Your freedom and your very ability to control your own destiny would be severely compromised. That is the threat. Well, last week, the Labor government held a jobs and skills summit in Canberra, comprising of industry heads, heads of employer groups, heads of trade unions, and of course, politicians, mostly from Labor. Although I read something yesterday, which said that there were a bunch of empty seats. So the treasurer, Jim Chalmers, invited junior Labor MPs to come along so they could post a photo on their Facebook page to pretend to their constituents that they were part of the proceedings. I'd say 99% of constituents following their local MP on Facebook just wants to hear what this Labor government will do about their economic struggles. That's my hunch anyway. This talk fest was nothing but a publicity stunt for the shiny new Albanese government. For starters, most of the half-baked announcements coming out of the summit were flagged prior to its commencement. The ACTU's Sally McManus has been running around town for weeks telling anyone who will listen what the union's demands are. McManus wants wages to keep up with inflation and social benefits and income support to be fully and promptly indexed to the actual consumer prices paid by recipients. That's a sure way of fueling inflation. I said it in my editorial and I'll say it again. The only game in town is the P word, productivity. How do we make Australia productive again? Let's increase the supply of cheap and reliable baseload power for starters. Let's also wind back social welfare and this dependency on government. There are jobs galore in this country, but no takers. We must ask ourselves why that is. The Sunday Mail columnist Peter Gleeson got it right when he wrote, quote, why would anybody want to drag themselves out of bed, stand on their feet all day to cut people's hair, albeit for good money now, when they can continue to bludge off the public purse, unquote. He went on, quote, the big challenge for Australia is not wages growth, it's actually getting people off their backsides to work, unquote. Spot on, Gleeso. We don't have a skills shortage in this country. That's fake news. We have a manpower shortage. The people are here already, but the past two years has destroyed work ethic. My next guest is the Liberal Senator for Western Australia, Michaelia Cash. First elected in 2007, she was the Attorney General and Minister for Industrial Relations 
in the previous Morrison government. Prior to entering Parliament, Senator Cash was a senior lawyer at law firm Freehills, practising employment and industrial law. She holds an honours degree in law from the University of London and a Bachelor of Arts from Curtin University in Perth. Senator Cash is now the opposition's industrial relations spokeswoman, and I'm pleased to say she joins me here on ADH TV. Michaela Cash, thanks for your time. It is fabulous to be with you, Jake. Look, just before we get onto the topic of jobs and militant unions, the Liberal Party in Western Australia was obliterated at the last state election. We just had a federal election where the Liberals lost as well. But how do you grow both the Liberal Party and the National Party in WA when both leaders are from the same state and both of their deputies are from the same state? Wouldn't it make sense to have you, a senior WA Liberal, as deputy leader? I love being a senator for Western Australia. And I have to say, I think we have a fantastic leadership team in Peter Dutton and Susan Lay. You are right, though. Uh, the Western Australian Liberal Party, uh, we were taught a very hard lesson by the people of Western Australia uh, at both the state election and the recent federal election. We need to listen to the very clear message that they have sent us and act upon it. Uh, but I have to say, having Peter Dutton as the leader and Susan Lee as the deputy leader, uh, people are absolutely energised, in particular in terms of the policies that we are going to be taking forward. And just to pick up what you said in your editorial, uh, because you are right, what do Australians want from the Albanese government? Well, Jake, you and I know, but two hours ago, we saw the Reserve Bank lift interest rates yet again. Australians are facing the prospect of life getting even more expensive under the Albanese government. And yet after the summit that they had last week, what have we seen? We have seen a capitulation to the ACTU and literally the promise to legislate industry-wide bargaining, which as you and I know, it will shut down the economy. So, so much for the P word, productivity, it is going to be non-existent under the Albanese government. Well, you're a fighter and uh, that's why we love you. So speaking of fights, you just mentioned the unions. Wasn't Labor's job summit just a more public platform for trade unionists like Sally McManus to dictate economic policy in this country? Well, Jake, look at the guest list because the guest list uh, almost tells you what the outcome was going to be. So small businesses, they represent, let's say, around 41% of Australians. One seat. One seat at Labor's job summit. And then you look at the union movement. Now, union membership in the private sector in Australia is less than 10% of the workforce. So, did they get that representation? No. They got around 33 of the seats, which is in excess of 25% of the representation. So, this wasn't a summit for people to come together and talk about policy ideas to, as Mr Albanese said, um, get that higher productivity, get those wages moving, get that full employment. This was literally a summit to get people together just to remind them that this is an endorsement of the ACTU's policies and the number one policy being a return to the 70s and 80s uh, and industry-wide shutdowns. 
Well, Michaela, just on that, just on that multi-employer bargaining or industry-wide bargaining, as they're calling it, you just said it will take us back to the 1970s. I totally agree. Yep. But where on earth are the employer groups? They should be jumping up and down about this. Well, I think finally what you've seen from the employer groups, but a few days after the announcement, and in particular looking at the front page of The Australian today, uh, when you have a senior union member in Australia coming out and saying... Absolutely, there is going to be industry-wide strikes uh, once the Albanese government legislates industry-wide bargaining. I think they're finally working out uh, that literally what they were offered uh, by way of some modest changes to the Better Off Overall test, which we actually brought to the Parliament, Jake, 18 months ago. So I think that's further proof that 18 months ago we brought to the Parliament modest changes to the boot that would have got more enterprise agreements being signed, that would have got productivity moving, that would have then seen those higher wages. And what did Mr Albanese and Labor do at the time? They opposed it for political reasons every step of the way. I say to Labor, if you really want to get wages moving in this country, if you really want those higher productivity returns, Jake, Bring in the changes the Coalition proposed 18 months ago next week to the Parliament and let's legislate them. But you see, they won't do that because that's not what the ACTU wants. And given the millions of dollars that the union movement in Australia give to the Australian Labor Party, they need to pay their paymasters and you don't pay that with good Coalition policy. Well, that brings me to my next question, actually, Michaelia, because I couldn't believe that Labor's Employment and Workplace Relations Minister, Tony Burke, described the gig economy as a cancer. The gig oh. economy is an exciting technological development that links buyers with sellers and allows flexibility in work. Michaelia, I think uh, Tony Burke's real problem here is that gig workers are unlikely to join unions. Oh, you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> But, Jake, how would you like to be a person who, as you said, chooses to work in the gig economy? You choose the flexibility that the gig economy offers you and then the Industrial Relations Minister in Australia says the job you do is a cancer. Well, guess what? I say shame on you, Minister Burke, because the gig economy, it's only a very small part of the economy, uh, but it is one that enables that choice for people. It is one that enables flexibility. Uh, but ultimately, the reason Labor do not like the gig economy is because it's not unionised. And with union membership at uh, almost an all-time low, uh, what Labor are basically doing for the union movers is saying, we're going to help you go on a recruitment drive, so we will actively legislate to destroy those forms of work in Australia that provide flexibility because we don't like choice. The only choice that we're going to provide you under the Albanese government is one where we dictate to you that you join a union. I mean, Jake, do you remember the demands the other day uh, that the union movement put out in relation to, we'll agree to an increase in the migration cap, but only if we, the union movement, control our borders and Anyone coming in under the migration program, the skilled migration program, they get a compulsory union induction at the border and probably compulsory union membership. Seriously? <laughs> yeah, the Albanese Labor government 
donations come in, policy goes out. But ultimately, that doesn't bode well for the Australian people, particularly in relation to the decision of the Reserve Bank, but a few hours ago to increase interest rates. Yep, that's right. They're puppets. Now, your chapter in the book Australia Tomorrow is a very important one. In it, you reasserted the importance of creating new jobs and the dignity that accompanies work. As a minister in the previous coalition government, you were very passionate, I know, about boosting TAFE programs, etc. Do you think Australia has to snap out of this fixation that every student must go to a university to attain a degree they may never use and instead promote a career in the trades? Oh, yet again, you've hit the nail on the head. That is exactly right. Whether it is the choice of university or the choice of vocational education and training, they should be seen as equal. In fact, though, I would go as far as saying, Jake, that what employers are screaming out for at the moment is work-ready employees from day one. And guess what system gives you that? It's actually the vocational education and training system. And that's why when I was the skills minister, I was absolutely delighted to be part of a government that provided record training to vocational, sorry, record investment to vocational education and training in Australia. We invested over $7 billion in the training system. We had a record number of Australians in training. I think there was around 220,000 apprentices and trainees. If you recall, we invested in a program called Job Trainer with the states and territories. But what was the key to this program? The key was we provided free training courses, but they had to be in areas of labour market demand. Under the former coalition government, we trained you to get a job. And uh, what worries me about Labor's recent announcement is that the money that they are putting into the system is only going to public providers' tape when we know that industry training providers, they actually train around 70% of those in training. So you'll have a total distortion of the market. And that's something that Australians should worry about. Yeah, that is very interesting. And look, uh, yeah. one last one before you go. The government has vowed to shut the Australian Building and Construction Commission as soon as possible. For viewers, this was the watchdog of the construction industry. Michaelia, what effect will this have on productivity? Well, it goes back to the key word that you articulated, productivity, which is exactly what you just said. When you hand the building and construction industry over to the most militant union in Australia, all you will see is a loss of productivity. The building and construction industry in Australia employs around 1.15 million workers. It contributes around 9% of our GDP. Why? Why if you wanted to create full employment? Why if you want to drive higher wages? Why if you want to drive higher productivity? Would you put all this at risk? Jake, there is only one answer because the CFMMEU in Australia provide millions of dollars to the Australian Labor Party and again, donations come in by way of money from the union movement and policy goes out. Anthony Albanese has shown in the first 100 days of his government, whether it's the ACTU, the AWU, the TWU, the CFMMEU, he will put the interests of the union movement in Australia above the interests of all Australians. And that does not bode well 
for Australia's future. And it doesn't bode well, Jake, for Australians in particular when it comes to what they're screaming out for. And that is just a plan to address the rising costs of living. That's right, and some leadership. It seems like Sally McManus is the real treasurer. Yep. She's the real treasurer, not Jim Chalmers. Well, look, uh, it's always good to hear from a passionate Liberal. Keep up the fight, and thank you for joining me tonight. It was great to be with you, Jake. Thank you very much. That's Michaelia Cash, Liberal Senator for Western Australia and the opposition's industrial relations spokeswoman. We'll turn in now to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I mentioned the other week on this show that Vladimir Putin is probably hoping the West loses interest in this war. And you don't need to be a clairvoyant to wonder what China's Xi Jinping is thinking. He'd be secretly hoping that Putin succeeds, so then he could make an almighty move on Taiwan, a liberal democracy of 24 million people. Such a move would shake up the world. But on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, this began on February 24. Today is September 6. Is the West so weak, so incompetent, so demoralised that we are not strong enough to take down a savage regime? Putin's Russia, it appears, is winning the economic war. Remember months ago when Western leaders were announcing economic sanctions against Russia, thinking it would cripple Putin? Our social media feeds were full of Russian oligarchs having their super yachts and holiday villas seized and, in some cases, their football clubs. That's right, Western leaders thought that freezing the assets of Kremlin cronies would convince Putin to give it all away. So far, it's done zilch. As The Economist reminds us, these sanctions, which won the most publicity, were actually the least effective. Most Russian oligarchs hold little political influence, and it's believed Putin is quite happy to see them taken down a notch. There was also an argument going around that seized assets should be liquidated and the proceeds go to Ukraine. So far, that's never transpired. It's believed that $50 billion out of $400 billion of offshore assets that are blocked on paper have been frozen. This is because these oligarchs are no fools. Their offshore treasures are hidden behind as many as 30 layers of shell companies incorporated in the Cayman Islands, Jersey and other havens, with redacted disclosure documents in multiple languages. Others have transferred ownership to friends. So that's that. There was also a big song and dance about the exclusion of commercial Russian banks from SWIFT, a global messaging system used for transactions. Research shows that between February 1 and April 30, the SWIFT suspensions caused a near-total collapse of money transfers between the excluded Russian banks and the German branch of Target 2, the system for clearing payments between Eurozone banks. So that made a dent. But banks that process Europe's voluminous purchases of Russian fuel are still allowed to use SWIFT. Much of the rest is being channeled through smaller banks that remain in the SWIFT network. Russia is also using China's homegrown SWIFT equivalent, which was created to rival the Western financial system. Overall, all I see is a zombified West, full of political leaders signing us up to net zero ideology and increasing national debt, unable to tackle runaway inflation, 
collapsing living standards and a culture of dependency. Forgive me for being forlorn, but when you toss up these ineffective economic sanctions, what hope is there that Putin will be defeated? Over six months on, we're yet to find out. And each week, Alan crosses to the fantastic Peggy Grandy for the US report. And with Joe Biden in the White House, there's always plenty to discuss. He's the gift that keeps on giving. But before we go to Peggy, who will join us from Los Angeles tonight, there's been a frightening development in California, her home state. That is this Governor Gavin Newsom, who fancies himself as a contender for the presidency of the United States, should Biden choose not to recontest. Well, he's expected to sign a bill which bars Californian doctors giving a medical opinion on COVID, which differs from the state's health bureaucracy. So apparently public health bureaucrats are the arbiters of truth. This is big government gone mad. If signed into law, California would be the first state in America to legislate limits on doctors' freedom of speech. This is censorship. This is an attack on civil liberties. This is a situation where government is censoring Americans. If the saying, when America sneezes, the world catches a cold, if that saying is true, then Australians should be fearful that if politicians here get a whiff of this, they too may line up to legislate the views and speech of doctors. Let's bring in Peggy Grandy to get her views on this and more. Peggy, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Jake, so much for having me on today. Uh, Peggy, this bill well, in California is very dangerous. Sorry, Peggy, but th it's a very dangerous bill, this one. Isn't the purpose of science to challenge orthodoxy and the consensus? Absolutely. And I am coming to you from Los Angeles, California, and I can't believe anybody would listen to Gavin Newsom in anything. California has become a mocking, uh, has become the laughing stock of the world. We are the tip of the spear of bad ideas. Here's a governor who just in the last week or so said that we were going to do a moratorium on gas cars. And then when we have a heat wave, he says nobody's allowed to charge their electric vehicles at night. This is a guy who told us we have a 15 day moratorium on watering our grass as we're going into fire season. He tells us that we're not allowed to use our appliances in the evening because it'll crush the grid, but we've had rolling blackouts during the day. So I don't know why anybody listens to this governor. But back to your point about silencing op opposing ideas, he is dangerous in this as well. He has been wrong on everything with COVID and now using doctors and politicizing them, this is dangerous. This is something that not only the nation should be watching, but the world should be weary of as well. Well, Tracy Hogue, an epidemiologist in Grass Valley, California, said the idea of scientific consensus medicine was basically an oxymoron. Peggy, isn't this attack on free speech by the state of California in direct violation of the First Amendment? Of course it is, but that hasn't stopped the Democrats from doing anything against the First Amendment, the Second Amendment. You pick an amendment and they wanna go against it if it advances their political cause. And the very nature of science is we should always be questioning. There's never a complete truth in science. I mean, didn't we believe that the world was flat and the moon was made of cheese and all these things that <laughs> science is continually evolving as facts come out, as technology advances. And so there shouldn't ever be a snapshot 
moment in time where we say, this is where truth stops. This is where science ends. We should be constantly advancing science as um, additional truths come out. So this is dangerous. Yes, spot on. And tell me if I'm wrong, but isn't this emblematic of a much larger problem? Because we know the White House has engaged in censorship by proxy, as it was revealed senior executives at Facebook and Twitter had discussions with government officials about removing and censoring objectionable pages and posts. Uh, Peggy, again, don't Americans have a First Amendment right to express their opinions, no matter how misguided or ill-informed? Well, we absolutely do. And we should have a constitutional right to be stupid or foolish as well. But it would be one thing if the government was always right. Then they wouldn't have to convince people or force people to listen to them. But they've been wrong at every turn, and especially when it comes to COVID. Do you remember? Wear a mask. Don't wear a mask. Wear two masks. If you're vaccinated, you'll never get COVID. Stay six feet apart, but only unless you're not an elected politician, because we're going to do what we want. And so the science that they claim is has always been changing even through COVID. If government was right, we would be happy to listen, but they've been so wrong so many times, have never apologized and have always covered up their errors. And so people are not willing or wanting to listen to this. And to align with big tech is frightening because we don't really know then what we don't know. We know what they want us to know and not what we need to know or want to know. Well, that's right. And so cozy is the Biden administration's relationship with big tech that when one White House official asked someone from Facebook to remove a fake Dr. Fauci account, they received an answer within seconds which said, yep, on it. When it comes to the White House conspiring with social media giants, will we ever know how high or wide it goes? No, we won't and we don't. And, you know, it was interesting because as Elon Musk looked at buying Twitter, didn't we see just a little bit of a peek behind the curtain of how things are done and how they fabricate even followers so that it, it has the appearance of this consensus? But um, the science should not be based on consensus. Big tech and um, the media giants should not be able to just speak in unison, to be all in sync with their talking points and have that then be the truth. The American people People and the people of the world are smart enough to look at the data, look at the details and make decisions for themselves. And you know what? Sometimes we're going to get it wrong, but often they get it wrong, too. And we should have the freedom to make our own choice and not be forced by government to accept their party line. Yeah, that's right. It's called self-responsibility. Look, moving on to Joe Biden's speech from last Thursday titled, quote, Soul of the Nation. Not only was it painful viewing, it was a very dark speech. It aired on primetime TV, and the background was like a Halloween horror night at Universal Studios. Let's just watch this. But first, we must be honest with each other and with ourselves. Too much of what's happening in our country today is not normal. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Uh, Peggy, this is the President of the United States insulting the over 74 million people who voted for Donald Trump in 2020 and then claiming he's bringing the country together. Is that a fair analysis? 
I mean, that's what he's claiming. This man ran on being a unifier. Remember, we were going to be post the Donald Trump era of division, and he was going to unify the nation. And not only to your point, was this a soulless, not soul of the nation's speech? It was scary. They had Marines posted. It was this uplit in red. It was really a terrifying speech, and it was meant to be terrifying for anybody who opposes Joe Biden and the alignment with the media and big tech. But you know what? Like everything Joe Biden has done in his administration, all it has done is unify the other side. They realize the stakes are incredibly high and they can't risk having another Biden-like administration in the White House in 2024. And so if anything, he's uniting the Republican Party. He's galvanizing them against this kind of censorship. Yeah, look, it is seriously a bad speech. One thing is for certain though, without an auto cue, he's useless. Let's just watch this bit here. We preserve democracy. We heeded our worst. We, we heeded not our worst instincts, but our better angels. We, we proved that for all its imperfections, America is still the beacon to the world, an ideal to be realized, a promise to be kept. There's nothing more important, nothing more sacred, nothing more American. That's our soul. That's who we truly are. And that's who must, we must always be. I have no doubt. None. <laughs> Peggy, I know he's trying to sound Churchillian, but he just comes across as a geriatric with a vacant mind who just waffles on and talks about random stuff. Is Joe Biden seriously going to run again in 2024? Absolutely not. He can't and he won't, nor will Kamala Harris. You know, the Democrat Party is in a really bad place because not only do they have two incredibly weak leaders at the top right now, they have a very weak bench. And it's not based on the people. It's based on their ideas as well. They don't just have weak people, but they have weak ideas and they can't sell them to the American people because the American people, what they want and care about are not the things that this president, this vice president and the entire Democratic Party are talking about about. The American people want safe streets. They want smart schools. They want a closed border. They want inflation to be under control. They want living to be affordable. They want cheap energy that is abundant. They want to be able to start and run a business. And most of all, they want freedom. They want freedom from govern government tyranny, telling them what to do, what to think, and how to act. And so the American people will not be reelecting Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, or anybody who abides by this sort of partisan rhetoric. So then who could it be? Could it be uh, the governor of your home state, Gavin Newsom? I would love to see Gavin Newsom go up against any one of our Republican candidates that will surely rise to the top. When you have a calling card like California, which is, has crumbling infrastructure and is failing at every term, let him go ahead and run. I would love to see it. He has good hair, nice shirts. It's not going to be enough. Yeah, that's right. Well, look, all I know is that someone does need to make it stop because this president is tanking a once great nation. Peggy, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Thank you, Jake, as always, for having me on. That's my best. That's Peggy Grandy, author of the book, The President Will See You Now, and former EA to President Ronald Reagan. And before we go to Fred Paul... After winning the Conservative Party leadership, Liz Truss will become the next UK Prime Minister, taking over from Boris Johnson. I still can't believe that Boris Johnson, 
after winning such a huge mandate from the British public in 2019, I still can't believe he blew it. Sadly though, it was all his own doing. People who traditionally voted Labor voted for Boris in 2019. His appeal was that he was anti-woke and pro-Brexit. He excited the British public and promised to bring economic prosperity to the Midlands and be a defender of traditional British values. Instead, many supporters became disillusioned when, out of nowhere, he went hard on climate activism and started getting a reputation for leading a tax and spend government. In the end though, it all caught up on him. After weeks of campaigning and going all around the UK, Liz Truss has come out on top, beating the slick Rishi Sunak. In her victory speech, she said, quote, I campaigned as a conservative and I shall govern as a conservative, unquote. That line alone has won her a lot of praise. But she enters Downing Street at a very difficult time because like here, the UK is suffering from soaring energy prices and runaway inflation. Many tens of thousands of small businesses employing millions are facing electricity bills that are triple or quadruple the previous levels. Without government action, there will be a cascade of closures and bankruptcies. So it's been predicted that Liz Truss and her team will pursue a very unconservative answer to all this, and that is freezing energy bills until 2024. It's a huge intervention by government and predicted to cost 100 billion pounds. According to some opinion polls, eight in 10 voters want a bills freeze. The real problem here though, is that politicians have allowed coal-fired power plants to prematurely shut, turned their backs on nuclear power, and been obsessed with green schemes. Meanwhile, they've been happy to import gas from Russia, propping up Putin's war on Ukraine. The energy crisis is one whole sorry saga. It's so bad now that one British morning television show is offering to pay energy bills as a competition prize. I wish that were a joke, but it's not. Watch this. Okay, here we go. So we've got, we've got, we'll pay your energy bills. We've got a thousand pounds as well. So this is energy bills, I think, for four months if it stops on that. Nice. Uh, so how are your, how, how are your energy bills? Are you a bit worried about it all? Oh, major. Yeah. Are you? I've got, I've got one of these prepayment meters and it's absolutely murder. Oh, God. Right, well, let's hope it lands on one of those then. Whatever, right. you're going to win some money, so here we don't go. worry. Here yeah, we go. One way, one way or t'other. Here we go. Round and round it goes. Where it stops, nobody knows. Da, 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 da. Oh, thousand pounds or energy down. bill. Thousand pounds or energy bill. It is going to be... Energy bill! Oh my god, thank we're, you. We're paying your energy bill for four months. The whole thing is very dystopian. When it comes to energy prices, everyone is struggling. On the east coast of Australia, we endured power shortages and blackouts, and millions will soon receive a nasty surprise in their letterbox. It's called the electricity bill. This is what irritates me about these do-gooders, especially those seats held by the Teal Independents and Greens. Advocating for these radical climate policies only guarantees one thing, further impoverishing Australians. While ever politicians who are on taxpayer-funded salaries 
continue to appease eco-millionaires by wasting your money on pie-in-the-sky green schemes and being in a rush to shut down coal and gas plants and force you into driving an expensive electric vehicle before you are ready, so long as we allow that to happen, it's your household and business which pays the price, not them. That's it from me tonight. It was a privilege again to fill in for Alan. I hope you enjoyed the show. He'll be back on your screens though tomorrow night. Keep watching ADH TV as Fred Poor is up next and he'll be speaking to John Roskam and Alexandra Marshall from The Spectator. See you next time. Good night.